the wind's pushing me down and I pulled the stick back because the trees are coming up and the brush is getting taller and I stalled the airplane. Well, you stall the airplane in a cross-controlled situation, the airplane spins and that's almost always fatal. I was probably 30 feet up, it corkscrewed down, I remember the nose diving into the ground, I was full power, 2500 RPMs. Welcome to the Stuck in Rut Podcast. Got him. Dropped him. Nice shot, buddy. We're excited to bring you our stories and hunting tips to elevate your outdoor adventures and experiences. We aim to uncover the real, raw strategies of do-it-yourself hunting that will bring your dreams to life and generate success. To follow along with our yearly hunts, subscribe to Stuck in the Rut on YouTube. All right. Hey guys, welcome back to the Stuck in the Rut podcast for episode number two. It is Adam and I sitting here together. We are back in Alaska and it was kind of funny as I was setting up the microphone and everything to get this podcast rolling tonight, we felt an earthquake. So my first one, (laughs) first one out here, I felt them in Anchorage, but felt an earthquake making this podcast. We're still alive. We just want to talk a little bit about how we got to Alaska, how we ended up here, how we are chasing our dreams, and some of the crazy stories that we've just experienced both together and before we met. So I'm going to kind of put Adam in the hot seat and kind of grill him with some questions because I know he has a crazy story and this way you can just tell how crazy we really are as podcast hosts and kind of some of the stories that you have to look forward to coming up in future podcasts. <laughs> I, I don't think we're that crazy. I I downplay a lot of stuff, and Tana's like, no, that's serious. I'm like, well, I guess. It's just every day. Just every day. For us up here. Yeah. But I get calls like, oh, I almost died today. No big deal. Yeah. I'll, I'll be home for dinner. <laughs> that's kinda, yeah, I mean, like... That's kind of how Adam treats it. <laughs> I guess a good one yesterday. I flew back from Anchorage in a cub for work, and Tana said, oh, how's the fly? I said, oh, I got a really bad downdraft and a downdraft in an airplane is something you can't really pull up to fight especially in small airplanes you have to kind of turn out of it and I was going through the narrows the narrowest part of Lake Clark Pass and it was pretty good a thousand to fifteen hundred foot per minute downdraft and if I would have stayed in it you know I'm only three thousand feet above the ground that's going to be pretty bad but she's how's your flight no oh, it's good I caught a little bit of downdraft but turned out of it and got away you know but it tries to roll the airplane over and push you down on the ground and make you crash but Oh, thanks for not telling me that part. <laughs> Save the details for her. <laughs> he really downplays things. I think it's to kind of help with my stress and anxiety that when I when my husband leaves for work every day, there is a chance that he may not come back. And I don't really think about that, but everybody else tends to remind me of that. Really? And so, yeah. I didn't know that was the Yeah. <laughs> like, do you know how dangerous his job is? Like, yeah, he's flying every single day out in the bush. Um, so I try not to think about that, but when he sometimes calls me and says, oh, I, you know, this happened today, could have easily died, but I didn't. So be home for dinner at six. (laughs) It's just kind of an everyday thing for our life. So, um, Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we ended up in Alaska? So my dream was always to move to Alaska. 
I always joked and said, I'm going to buy a Super Cub before I buy a house. And that happened. I still don't own a house, but I have a Super Cub. And I just always thought Alaska was so cool. I got up here, I started being a fishing guide, and I saw that there was no roads up here, so planes were utilized everywhere. And then probably like everyone, I started looking at stuff on YouTube and Super Cubs and the water-assisted landings and just looking at these guys that it's the ultimate tool and basically a mix of an airplane and a four-wheeler put together and you can access just anywhere. I just thought that was so cool. I've always told people I should have been born in the 50s or the 60s and Alaska kind of sets you back on the time frame, I feel like, and you kind of go back 20 or 30 years, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And... So I, I just wanted that dynamic, and after being a guide up here and flying for lodges, and I just flew around looking at all these different places, saying, oh, I could land there, I could land there, and I knew I always wanted to live in Alaska, and I wanted to work here, and probably die here. Yeah, and for me, I came to Alaska when I was young. I was, I think, 19 or 20, kind of transferring around in college, and I just, I was a private pilot at the time. I was kind of studying sports medicine and exercise science and becoming a personal trainer, but with my aviation background, I just wanted to be where the airplanes were, and with growing up with the stuck in the rut boys and all the hunting and stuff that we did outside, I wanted to be in the ultimate place where I could hunt and fish and fly and be surrounded by just wilderness, and that was Alaska. So I moved up to Alaska when I was 19, maybe 20 years old, by myself, didn't know anybody up here. Quickly made a lot of connections and a lot of friends and graduated college up here. And ever since, I've just had this pull, like, this is the place we need to be. So when I met my husband, Adam, on a silly app, um, <laughs> we don't need to talk about Tinder, but uh, we met and he was a pilot in Alaska and I wanted to move to Alaska, so... We just kind of had the same mentality. I always told him I wanted a super cub before we bought a house, and I wish I lived in the 50s. And just everything that we had in common just meshed. And I don't know. Would you say we're basically the same person? Yeah, I was telling the story the other day when I first wrote Tana. She was holding a picture of a grayling, and I was sitting on a bush wheel of a, a super cub for my profile picture of Tinder. <laughs> and I said, oh, any chick holding a grayling must be pretty pretty cool. And she didn't even answer. She just said, do you fly those airplanes? Because I have beavers and cubs and I think a 185. And, it makes and me sound stuff. shallow, but I'm like, not. She's like, do you fly those? And I was just like, whoa, hey, girl, slow down. And I was like, yeah, I do. Um, but, yeah, we're really similar. And um, our parenting styles are, I guess, I don't know, just morals and values and how we think. And um, I want to touch base. I was immersed in Alaska at a really young age when I was – between the ages of 8 and 11, those four summers, my parents, my dad kind of got laid off from his job, got a severance package. We bought a 24-foot boat, and we would put in at Prince Rupert, so over in BC, and we would take it up the Inside Passage of Alaska, where all the islands are in the southeast part of the state, and just, it's really protected water, and there's all kinds of cabins, and we'd just stay on the boat, and we just ate salmon and crab, and it was just... We had just explored. We took the boat so far, I mean, all the way up to Juneau, Sitka, all those places. And so I was really immersed into amazing landscape and fishing and stuff. And I just I just knew Alaska was, it's the real deal. You know, when you come up here, it's not, we're spoiled when it comes to fishing anymore. And so that was my kind of first immersion into it. And then I knew I had to get back. And then I came back when I was 17 and started working up here. 
Yeah, so for both of us, it's been a place where we always wanted to be. So once we got married, it was kind of a no-brainer. Like, this is what we're going to do, and we'll probably be here until we die. Um, so when you think about Alaska and all of the years that you've spent up here, what was your first, like, crazy, rugged, you know, near-death type experience that you were like, man, this place is no joke. Like, I need to be safe. Uh, probably one of the first ones I was on, I was guiding on the Togiak River, so far western Alaska. There's a tributary that comes off the Togiak called the Gishik, and a buddy of mine, Justin, and I wanted to take the boat and just, we didn't, we were going to fish, but we just wanted to see how far we could run the run the creek upriver, and it was super high water, it had been raining, so it was just pumping a ton of water, and we just went, we had tons of gas, and just went as far as we could, and I drove up, which I didn't really think about this time, but in jet boats, going up's the easy part, going down is a lot more dangerous and more technical, and he didn't have a lot of time in jet boats, so I drove up, then we got up there, and I kind of went down a little ways, and told him he could go and finish the route down, well, on a jet boat, you want to have the boat just barely on step, and have enough gas to kind of power out of a corner and he was just wide open so we came into a corner and he didn't cut the corner right and he didn't have the right techniques and we basically got pushed up onto the bank we had a ton of water on the stern of the boat we went up the bank and water's pouring over the stern filling up the boat so I jump up in the front push us off and then I told him to gun it because there was another big corner with sweepers and stuff in the water coming around the next corner. Have I told you this story? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think she's heard this. But anyways, <laughs> we go to the next corner and I'm like, dude, you got to get on it. And so I, I just told him, let's switch. So I jump on the tiller and I just try and pin it. But now we got 500 pounds of water in an 18-foot boat. And we hit the next bank, hit all the stumps and everything that's protruding from the cut bank. And it was just a no-brainer. It just rolled us right away. And so he's in panic mode, and one thing my dad always told me is Coast Guard boats, or Coast Guard has to certify a boat under 20 feet in length that it has to float, and there's styrofoam that fills the seats and everything, so literally you can take the boat, cut it in half with a chainsaw, and the parts are still going to float. And so I just told him, I was like, dude, just get your stuff, grab as much as you can, because everything's out of the boat floating down the river now, all our fishing rods and tools <laughs> and everything. And we just climb on top of the boat, and we rode that boat upside down, probably like three miles downriver, because remember, the water was so high, we didn't run aground or anything, and we hit a few times where we weren't able to get out and stop the boat. Eventually, we came to a gravel bar, we kind of kicked and swam our way over to it with the boat, flipped the boat over, he started bailing, I started pulling plugs and getting the water out of the boat and everything, and the cowling was all scratched up, there was water inside the case of the oil. It's not a good situation. We had minimal tools because everything fell out of the boat and washed down the river, like gas cans, boat cushions, sage fly rods, everything. And uh, we eventually got it started and came back like 2 in the morning. And yeah. Did you lose everything? Uh, we kind of, we kind of, over the next week of guiding and stuff, we were fishing that river for trout and stuff and salmon. And we would pick up bits and pieces along the way. And there's other buddies of ours that would pick up stuff. Um, and they would return it to our lodge. So, yeah, we lost a lot. It's quite the experience. See, I'm still hearing stories I've never heard before, and we've been married for five years. Well, I haven't really heard the boat story. I've heard a lot of airplane stories. Lots of them. <laughs> that was the first one. I think I was 
18 or 19 when that happens, so it's still pretty new, and water will kill you. Water will kill you really fast in Alaska. So I had somebody ask this on social media the other day, so I might as well ask you now, but what is the worst Super Cub or airplane either landing or crash that you've had? Because usually a bad landing is a bad crash. Uh, well, I've wrecked one. Do you want to talk about that? Whatever you want to talk about. Your worst, so oh, not your worst. Man. Yeah, so this all gets back to that YouTube, and uh, statistically pilots are really known to crash and or kill themselves in about the 250 to 500 hour mark. And I had just come out of flight instructor rating. I had, I think, 280, maybe 300 hours. I was going to work for a guy, and um, he had a couple cubs. And I was pretty inexperienced, and he kind of went out with me near Anchorage and showed me some stuff and kind of signed me off and said, yeah, you're good to go. Go get some more practice and stuff and fly these around and everything. And looking back, now that I own a Super Cub and I have thousands of more hours of flying and off-airport evaluation skills, what I was doing was just stupid. I can't believe I didn't crash before then. I mean, I was landing in, you know, ruts with six, where pickups went with six inches of water. And I, I remember a takeoff, and I'm not a fan of water skiing where you take your bush wheels and drive them over the water, either on landing or taking off. But I remember one takeoff, I misjudged it, and the tires were, like, skimming across the water like a boat, and I barely made it out of there and staggered out. And I was like, oh, that was kind of close. That would have been bad. And I just, I really didn't think of the the consequences of my actions and I was just practicing landings and I just felt like a stud. I was 21 years old. I was in Alaska. I was driving a cub. I was just like the guys I see on YouTube and I just knew, I knew it. I was the man and that has got, that has got so many guys in trouble and I try and warn so many guys about it and I was, I was just too cocky and I came into one spot and it was a really light colored gravel bar. I still remember it. And I probably flew over about 600 feet, and I'm like, yep, yeah, looks good, you know. And that's not a way to evaluate an off-airport landing site at all. And you can ask Tana, there's been times I've circled and drug my tires and 20 times before I've committed to a spot. So I just give this place a once-over. I'm like, yep, yeah, looks good. I'll drop it right in there and stop at 50 feet because I'm a stud. And I came back around. <laughs> it was a little left crosswind from the left, about 15 knots. It wasn't horrible. Uh, but for airplanes, that's tough because you have to – push the stick to the left and the right rudder and kind of cross control the airplane and one wheel will touch down hypothetically first and the airplane maintains um, longitudinal control with the rudder so you want to continue going straight but touch down on one wheel first. That didn't really happen. Um, I went and I landed but I landed pretty good. I bounced a little bit so I just kind of pushed the stick forward and I should have just went around. I added power and said nope that wasn't good. But as I was rolling out, so I committed to the landing, both tires are down, and as I'm rolling out, I see in this light-colored gravel, I don't really see it, it just kind of happens, but I don't have depth perception of different colored rocks, and it's almost like a sand, just real small pea gravel, that I, I hit this little kicker, and it's only 12 inches, but that's enough to take an airplane that's moving probably close to 30 miles an hour and throw me up in the air. Well, 30 miles an hour, you're not flying, but you're also not stopped. And so now I'm in a really vulnerable spot. I'm probably six feet off the ground. I'm not flying. I don't have the 40, 42 miles an hour I need to fly. I still have full flaps in the airplane. I have a lot of drag, and I have a crosswind from the left. So I don't know why, but I decided to go around and say, this is not looking good. Panic mode sets in. This is where I don't feel like a stud at this point. 
full power. I push the stick down because I want to increase the airspeed and put some wind over the wing, so I'm not going to stall the airplane. And now I make a right turn. Well, in airplanes, when you turn downwind, the wind naturally wants to push you down. You do a lot better if you turn into the wind. I don't know why I didn't turn left. I, I'm more comfortable into a left turn, and I always have been. But I turn right, and in an airplane, when you turn right, use the stick or the yoke and then you also use your feet in conjunction to stay coordinated well as a lower time pilot i wasn't all about coordination i just kind of watched the ball so oh, yeah it's nice and it's it's cool if the ball is in the center and you're using your feet in accordance with how your hands are operating the aircraft and so basically what i did is i was cross controlled i turned down wind the wind's pushing me down and i pulled the stick back because the trees are coming up and the brush is getting taller and I stalled the airplane. Well, you stall the airplane in a cross-controlled situation, the airplane spins. And that's almost always fatal. I was probably 30 feet up. It corkscrewed down. I remember the nose diving into the ground. I was full power, 2,500 RPMs. Grabbed the V-brace that is right in front of you. And I didn't have a shoulder harness. And it was almost like angels just set the airplane down super soft. I still remember it vividly. Had a chance to say a few choice words. And now the airplane stopped. I'm upside down. I shut the gas off because I think it's going to catch on fire. And I'm like, well, this sucks. And then a helicopter comes and picks me up. And that was a pretty bad day. Was it like completely scrunched up to nothing? Or how did you, I just, how did you walk out of that? So yeah, the the top deck of the airplane, the Super Cub's not very big. When I sit in our Cub now, my head's probably an inch and a half from the top bars which are metal bars, like taking a piece of rebar into the head. And that top deck was the whole thing was probably crushed in a foot to a foot and a half. And everyone that saw that airplane, they're like, I don't know how you walked away and let alone how you only have a little scratch on your left shin right here. And just a tiny little mark. And like I said, I just wasn't my time to go. And God said, hey, it's not your time to die today. Didn't have a shoulder harness on, which is usually the thing that keeps your face from hitting the instrument panel, those bars in front of you. You didn't have a shoulder harness on either? Well, the plane didn't have one. It just had a seat lap belt. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times people die up here from their head hitting something. But more often than not, I think people die because they get knocked out. And then an airplane is hot. There's spark. There's fuel leaking out everywhere. And then the airplane catches on fire post-accident. But you're knocked out. So then you die. Smoke inhalation. You just burn to death. But you're passed out didn't happen that's crazy i can't even imagine at least that was way before i knew you <laughs> he kind of got out all of the crashes and things out of the system by the time he met me so i haven't had too many crazy experiences with you there's been a few um but you're a very good pilot and got us out of those situations mostly due to weather but we have a lot of stories like that so that's would you say that's the worst airplane incident you've ever had uh, yeah, by far. I mean, the plane was totaled, uh, the rudder, both, both sets of wing struts, the prop, and the whole thing was just gone. Um, but that was a big piece of humble pie. At that point, I did not feel like such a stud <laughs> as I did the previous day, and I didn't have it. Let's just say that. And I tried to rethink my career, and it was, it was a rough go, but I, you can't just quit. And I tell buddies that wrecked their cubs, hey, you're here, airplanes are replaceable, I'm glad you're okay, and you just keep going. You know, you have to learn from your mistakes. And I'm telling this story so hopefully other people can learn from my mistakes. And we're going to get the question most likely of what I would do different now that I can have hindsight being 2020. 
I wouldn't have been in that situation. I would have got more instruction from an instructor. And I think I got an hour of instruction with the guy that was going to have me fly this cub. And I would have evaluated the landing site better. And I would have seen that there were some dips and some swells in there. And even after everything, knowing what I know now, if I would have got launched back into the air, I would have pushed the stick forward. I would have dropped the flaps. And I might have bent a landing gear or something or wrinkled something minor. But it would have been a lot better than trying to go around and get out of a bad situation when I was really close to the ground already. If I just would have dropped the flaps, told the airplane to quit flying, and just kept it on the ground, it would have been a lot better than spinning the aircraft 50 feet above the ground. And That's the typical moose stall that you guys hear about, that people get to a slow turn, they're cross-controlled, and the plane just inverts and snaps over and kills them. Yeah. Ugh, I don't ever want that to happen to me. I'm glad you survived that situation. Um, so me we too. could be here today. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have met you if that one ended differently. But it just goes to show, like, just Alaska's crazy. There are many times where I myself is like, oh, I could have died today, you know. Like, it's not just like a normal life. Like, when you're out in the wilderness, or you're in an airplane, or you're out hunting, you get caught in some crazy squall. That is just, there's nothing like it. It's like, this is life or death. Like, I have to really step it up here. What's your closest to death experience in Alaska? Because that, that wasn't my closest to death. But, I mean, according to airplanes, that's the most catastrophic. But what's your craziest close-to-death, I'm-gonna-die story? Definitely my sheep hunt. Sounds like a sheep hunt. So, a few years back, I drew a really awesome sheep tag. And I talked my brothers into coming up with me and, you know, just helping me pack it and just go on the experience with me. And my dad came up, too. And this was I would say one of our first real experiences in Alaska for hunting sheep. Like none of us had done it before. We did some research, but I mean, we just did not really know what we were getting into. We looked at maps and stuff, but th this was, I don't know, seven years ago or something. Um, so the maps and stuff on your phone, like we didn't have those back then. It was basically looking at paper maps and trying to figure out where we we're going to go. But the main thing that I remember about this trip is after we had planned everything and my brothers came up and my dad came up, we get to the sheep unit and of course Travis is like, everyone knows, the epitome of hunters in our family. Like everybody follows Travis, we kind of do what Travis says. <laughs> and not to put Travis on the spot here, but Travis still had never sheep hunted before and neither had any of us, but we just trusted Travis. Like wherever Travis goes, we're going. So Travis takes us up this canyon, and it's just a small little creek, like maybe ankle deep, calf deep in some places. And we're hiking up this creek because we know there's some sheep up this canyon, um, just based on the people that we had talked to in this area that had drew this tag, because it was a walk-in only, so there's no flying or anything like that. Um, so we're walking up this creek, and it's a day or two before season, and we're just trying to get up there so we can camp and, you know, hopefully shoot a sheep the first or second day of season. And we're hiking up this creek, and I fall in the creek. And I didn't have everything waterproof from head to toe, so I was already soaked from, you know, my neck down, basically. But we just kept going. It was mid-August, or the beginning of August, so it was pretty nice weather. 
So we keep following Travis, and pretty soon we get cliffed out. We're in this creek drainage. There's cliffs everywhere. There's waterfalls. He had me climb a waterfall. I'm like, where are we? What are we doing here? He's like, we just got to keep going. So we're basically rock climbing this face, trying to get up to this bench where we can glass this big bowl and try to find some sheep. And it is just the nastiest, thickest, darkest alder brush and alders that I've ever seen. Like, once we got up through that rock face where I thought I was going to fall to my death, um, then we were in this alder stuff. And then it started to rain. It started to just pour rain. Um, we didn't have all the best gear at that time. We were just probably not as prepared as we should have been. And we're going through these alders. We're just getting soaked. It's so steep. I just can remember how steep it was. And hours are passing, and we're just killing ourselves trying to get up to this spot. And we get through the alders, and finally we're above tree line, and we just have a little ways to go to get on top so that we can really glass these sheep. But as soon as we popped out of the alders, we spotted some sheep a few miles away, like up this canyon, and we're looking at them. We can't tell because they're several miles away. We can't tell if they're legal rams, and it's starting to get dark. It's probably like 10 o'clock at night. It gets dark around midnight up there. So... We just keep pushing along. Travis like, oh, we need to find a spot to set up our tent because we were on too steep of a, of a mountainside to set up a tent. So he's like, let's get to the very, very top of this mountain and set up our tent there. So as we're getting to the top of this mountain, this squall pushes in. And I kid you not, like, I've been in Alaska. I've been in big windstorms. This was 80 to 100 mile an hour winds. You could not stand up. You could not do anything. I Did mean, you lose part of the tent? Yeah, we lost everything. <laughs> we lost a lot of stuff. And to boot, we were all soaked because it was pouring rain. You know how that Alaska rain gets. And my dad's with me, who is almost 60 years old, and he was wearing some stuff that was not waterproof. And so he was soaked, and he started getting really cold. And we're still trying to get up to this the top of this hill so we can set up a tent and get some shelter. But there's, like, not a tree. There's not a rock. There's not anything to get cover under. So we continue to keep pushing up toward the top of this mountain, and these winds hit, and it is just rain sideways, 80 to 100 mile an hour winds. We're crawling on our hands and knees trying to get to this spot, and I look over at my dad, and he just, instant hypothermia. He just collapses, he can't move, he can't talk, and that's when it set in, like, we are gonna die. And then it started to hit me, like, I was getting hypothermic, I was pretty, um, well-versed in first aid and everything because I was a lifeguard and I had all this training and CPR and first aid and everything. I was like, I am pre-hypothermic right now. And so I went and grabbed my dad. I yelled at my brothers to set up a tent. And they're trying to get the tent poles out. And I mean, they're basically on their hands and knees ripping stuff out of the bag. And I just look at over there. It's like a tornado. We're basically in a tornado hurricane, basically. And this, these tent pieces are just flying off in the wind. Like, oh, there goes that piece. There goes that piece. Like, never to be seen again. And I'm just yelling at them, like, praying my heart out. Like, get that tent set up. Dad's sick. And so they finally got it set up after what seemed like an eternity and my dad just collapsed. He couldn't move anymore. I was freaking out. I mean, when you're in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, you have no saw reception. You have no way in a squall to get help. You are you yeah, no against... Yeah, that. It's you against <laughs> Mother nature. nature. And so I drug my dad into the tent as soon as they got it set up, which was barely... And the tent poles... It was blowing so hard, the tent poles were smacking the ground. Like, 
it was insane. I've never seen wind like that again. Um, even on the Alaska Peninsula, I haven't seen wind like that. So I drug my dad into the tent. All I can remember is being so cold that I couldn't feel anything. I started to get a little delusional, but he couldn't talk. So I took his shoelaces off, like untied his shoes with my teeth because that's the only way I could get them off. And like quickly undressed him, got a sleeping bag out, you know, dressed him down basically to just his long underwear. And I cuddled up next to him in his sleeping bag. And he, like, after a little bit, he slowly came to, but it was scary. It, that was the moment where I was like, we could really die here. <laughs> um, and thankfully, my brothers had enough sanity and, and were able to hold it together to get a tent up so that we could get him in that shelter. But it was bad. It was bad that night. And then the next day, it was even worse because it had flash flooded everything. We decided to get out of that canyon and go up a different one, one that was maybe a little more safe than, you know, climbing cliffs and waterfalls. So we got out of that canyon and all of our stuff was soaked and ripped apart from the wind. And that little creek that we had crossed and walked up was now up to my belly button and up to my shoulders in some spots. Yep. And so we just had to wade the creek across, basically swim it and get back down. I mean, it was brutal. <laughs> that was my very first sheep hunting experience. So I can't say that like I love sheep hunting, but I do love it just because it's so rugged. It was, it was tough, and I can say, like, oh, almost died on that trip. So that was kind of my first experience. I was like, holy crap, Alaska is the real deal. Like, this is no joke. We have to be prepared. We have to have survival gear. We have to be prepared for every possible situation. Um, so I'm glad we didn't die on that because I did end up getting it smasher sheep, like, two days later. But it was a rough start. <laughs> yeah. Sounds awful familiar, like, awfully familiar to a stock Trav and I did and it ended up being a total bust because we walked up a creek and then we got to where it cliffed out and on even all of our maps and aerial pictures we had and onyx and stuff couldn't tell that there was a waterfall we walked up a creek and there's a waterfall so we had to start scaling cliffs and getting stuff we had to break out the climbing rope for the sheep hunt and I still remember like have the kuyu belt you can double back a climbing harness and it has it says danger and stamped in the belt. Yeah. If you can see danger, it's bad. Well, I didn't have it double back, <coughs> and I had the belt clipped in. And I was holding my gun and had my pack on. And I was trying to go up slowly, and uh, yeah, it started to slip a little bit. I looked down and I stopped and kind of resituated and everything. And we didn't have super bad winds or anything, but that was a that was another. I mean, I wasn't falling, Trav. We we committed to make that move and stuff. But it just it's hard when you want the animal so bad. You just you get to the waterfall like, oh, we can just make it around here and we'll just keep going. And yeah, it's things compound so quickly where if you're not, if you're having like two bad things in a row go wrong, you should probably just bail. Yeah. Or if you need like climbing rope to get on a hunt, you know, maybe, Stupid. maybe there's another route you can take. You don't need to take that risk. Is the risk going to be greater than the reward or, you know, you yeah. have to really look at risk and reward. I think when we live here and do the things that we do. We take a lot of risks, but we take calculated risks to know that, you know, is it worth it? Nah, <laughs> not this time. So we definitely learned our lesson, I think, on, on that sheep punt. And I'm sure Adam learned a lot of lessons from that Super Cup crash. But those are kind of reasons. It's interesting when I think of why I love Alaska so much. Of course, I love it because it's rugged and it's beautiful and there's so much opportunity for outdoor experiences. But all my favorite memories are the ones that sucked the worst. Oh, yeah. 
I don't know why that is, but <laughs> I think that's how hunting works, yeah, too. Yeah, nobody remembers the easy pack out, or, yeah. you know, I shot the elk, and we were able to get a four-wheeler to it, or drag it to the road, or no one remembers that kind of stuff, but you remember the one, you remember the stuff that's just straight up miserable. Yeah, like the thickest, nastiest stuff you've ever been in, and just the worst pack out, or the just, worst hike. <laughs> yeah, I just try and tell myself when I'm doing it, like, man, this sucks so bad, but once I'm done... It's going to be such a rad story. And I can tell forever, and I can remember that, oh, man, that sucks. That sucks so bad, packing that brown bear out five or six miles and dislocating my shoulder the first quarter mile. But I'm done. You know, once I yeah. put that down next to the airplane, I felt, like, so elated and so happy that I accomplished that goal. And then you'll remember that forever. So that's why we love Alaska. That's kind of how we ended up here is just those experiences that really sucked, basically, uh, led us to loving this place. And, you know, we mentioned before, we just really want to start this podcast because we've had a lot of requests from people saying you should write a book or uh, you should do a TV show or a movie. And we're not really into that kind of thing. So the next best thing, I think, is a podcast just to tell our stories and and give you guys tips and tricks on how you can hunt Alaska if you want to play at a do-it-yourself hunt. And, you know, just give you guys our tips for staying alive here because it can be nasty. It can be brutal and it can be life-threatening sometimes when the weather hits. Yeah, so, I used to I used to never listen to podcasts. And then I got up here and I fly, I don't know, probably close to 500 hours a year. And that's 500 hours of boredom that I can do a lot of time to listen to podcasts for the most part. And I pick up tips and tricks and things to, to do. And so I think if we can help other people learn from our mistakes, that's one of our main goals. Um, like evaluating your runway better when you're trying to land a super cub and you don't know anything. And I think with that, I kind of wanted to start the podcast. I want to bring some flying experts into this to talk about what you can do better, talk about their near misses and stuff so other pilots can listen to the podcast as well. Obviously, a lot of it will be incorporated and tied to hunting because in our case, our airplane is just basically to and from hunting locations. And I want to get the, there's a lot of great things about the hunting industry, but there's a lot of things that lack. And I want to get the real deal people on here. And even, I mean, I just met a guy the other day who's who's the real deal and just talking to him, he's like, oh man, I've probably shot, you know, several hundred maybe up into the thousands of caribou and different things and probably seven or 80 grizzly bears and those are the kind of guys that I want on here I want them to tell their stories and their tips and their tricks and you know yeah, they, the they, real deal people not the Instagram people you've never even heard of <laughs> yeah people you've never even heard of I mean the guy that taught me to fly airplanes and beavers in Alaska his name was Ron Hayes and he's a prolific dude up here and he's got, I asked him how many hours he has, he said, oh, probably over 30,000, I don't keep track, you know, and he, I just remember going to his office one time talking about stuff, and his screensaver photo reel was one airplane crash after another, I'm like, oh, what happened there, oh, fuel pump, what happened there, oh, broke a gear leg, oh, what happened there, snapped a ski, I mean, just, <laughs> these are the dudes that grew up flying in the 50s and 60s and pioneered Alaska, those are the real deal people you don't know about that we want to bring on here, and then also elaborate on a 4-12 to 12 minute video of a hunt, we want to expand that and tell more of the story like Tana did for the sheep hunt to kind of really put you in our shoes of how much it sucked. Yeah, so we do YouTube videos of all of our hunts and we have some several coming out here soon from last year. So we really enjoy just the whole hunt, but you know, on YouTube you're only getting maybe 6 to 
15 minutes at the longest watching one of our hunts and there's just so much that goes into that so we're super excited to you know bring Tom and Travis and their stories for their hunts last year and and coming up and then we'll tell our stories about everything that happened on our hunt so we're super excited to just expand on those YouTube videos make sure if you are not subscribed on YouTube that you do so because they're going to be coming out every couple weeks until we run out probably for the next I don't know four months or so yeah we've got some really cool videos coming out I think Tom wants to do a video every week, and we're going to do an episode which classifies as a kill shot on film every other week. Yeah. It's kind of, so every week there'll be a video, every other week there'll be one of those hunts that we've posted, I think, up till about August. Then obviously we're going to have some dead time from August till October, November, because that's when we're out hunting and getting other footage and stuff. And we'll be getting some spring bear stuff, hopefully, as well, and so will they. Uh, but for the most part, that's kind of our, our schedule in the next few months coming up. Yeah. So make sure that you watch out for those. So Stuck in the Rut, as we know, is mainly the face of, you know, Tom and Travis, because they were the ones that really started and founded Stuck in the Rut. Uh, my youngest brother, Trevor, also. But then Adam and I are kind of in it now as far as the Alaska side of Stuck in the Rut goes. So in case you don't know that much about us, because we're not that big of a deal, <laughs> we live in a bush community in Alaska. So we are about 300 miles off the road system. So that means you cannot drive to us. You have to fly or take a really long boat ride <laughs> to get to where we're at. But basically flying in is how we get everything. We have to order everything online or ship it in. So really, you know, our worries aren't TV and, and the news and what's going on in the world. It's we need to hunt to fill our freezer. And that is seriously the truth. Like we have to fill our freezers to eat. Um, along with that, we have five foster kids, so we're a family of seven. We took in five kids last year, so we used to do all these crazy adventures by ourselves, and now that we have five kids, it's slowed down a little bit, but now Adam's been able to take them out and got our oldest daughter a caribou last year, and we just get to involve them in beachcombing and airplanes and all the cool stuff that we get to do, like beaver trapping I don't know. We just have a lot of things that we get to do together. So now that we have several mouths to feed, we have four freezers that we shoot to fill every single year. And along with that, we have to ship our produce and to get any healthy food in here. We have to ship it out on a cargo plane. So that's a little bit about our lifestyle. We can't drive anywhere. We have about a 20 mile road that we kind of drive to and from like school and the post office work, the little tiny store here that's like 14 bucks a gallon for milk. <laughs> um, so I mainly ship things in. Other than that, our airplane is our car. Like Adam said, we don't have a house. We don't have nice cars. We have a Super Cub, and that is our main mode of transportation uh, to go hunting, to go to Anchorage, to get groceries, to travel to basketball games, to travel to doctor's appointments. Like, our airplane is basically our car and our transportation. Yeah, I'd say we live a really subsistence lifestyle for... People in lower 48 subsistence pretty much is just living off the land. Um, so we run a subsistence fishing net, like a gill net, and we net salmon during the summer. And we, I've never been a, a meat hunter. I grew up, my, my dad hunted, but it wasn't like we just ate deer meat. And so moving up here was kind of a change of pace because you can go and it's never like you're going to go hungry. You can always buy food at the store. It's just outrageously priced. It's yeah, insane. like that one time we went, there was a prime rib roast. Do you remember that? 
it was a fairly small prime rib roast. It was three hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, it's like forty bucks a pound. It's just insane. I mean, but the <laughs> the price to ship everything out here then. The original price. I mean, it's even stuff in Anchorage is expensive. By the time it gets here, it's just astronomical. And Might as well live in Hawaii. Yeah, maybe it costs more than that. I mean, a gallon of milk is 14 bucks, And so you can imagine with five kids, that gets expensive. But that being said, I mean, I've always, I don't know if you call it a trophy hunter. I just want to hold out for the biggest, most mature animal that I can research and scout and that I can, you know, kind of match wits with and play the game of chess and see just always thought it was so cool when you're in their environment, seeing if you can outsmart them. But this year started to get a little daunting with moose hunting because I took a buddy moose hunting and he got one, but we split the meat. Well, that's not still enough to sustain us. And then I needed to go kill one and I just couldn't pull it off. It was super hot, good weather, but it was just hard to put it, pull it together. And finally, like I had one last weekend to go and I said, anything with antler is going to go down, and I ended up shooting a 61-inch moose, but I would have shot a 6-inch moose, and so it ended up working out, and so that has kind of changed our hunting style. We still want to go after a big, mature animal, but we need the meat, Um, so I think last year we ended up going with four caribou and a moose and a half or two moose Mm -hmm. and try and fill our freezers before we can help other people in town that maybe didn't get something or don't have the ability or the means like we do and stuff like that and try and try and get back and help people. Yeah, so it's a pretty cool area where, where we live, but it's been below zero for months, so... It's just, we don't have a lot of people around, so where we live in southwest Alaska is really... It's almost like 30 or 40 years ago, going back in time, because without Facebook, I wouldn't know what happens in the world. We don't have TV. It's surprising we even have Facebook. Yeah. We can even post a podcast, to yeah, be honest. We, yeah, we don't have TV, we don't have video games, we don't have any of that stuff. We got two two cars um, that are not super high-end cars. We don't need anything down here. We'd rather invest the money in our airplane. And we got a trampoline and a little 400 enticer snow machine. And the kids just, they live outside. They love going into airplanes. I mean, when I go somewhere, it's always, oh, can I follow? Can I follow too? And you can't put five kids in a cub. And uh, they just... Taking turns. Yeah, they take turns. We go beach combing. We pick up fossils. We go pick up sheds. They go fishing for kings and fly rods. I mean, just I want to give those kids the true outdoors experience growing up that um, is is awesome. Yeah. So I would definitely say we're living the dream. I get that a lot. Like, man, your life is just a dream. It really is. Sometimes I keep expecting to wake up. Like, obviously, there are a ton of challenges that come with living out here. It's not easy. It's actually really hard. Most people that move out here usually end up leaving within a year or two because they just can't handle it, and there's no way out. You're stuck. So when it comes down to it, despite all the challenges, we just love adventure, and we love being outdoors. We love hunting. We love flying, and we just love just enjoying God's creation. So when it comes down to it, we just love this life, and I do feel like we're living the dream. So when it comes to chasing your dreams, like say there's people listening that are young or they're like, they have these dreams that they want, but they don't know quite how to do it. Adam, what would be your number one piece of advice to those people to chase their dreams? I guess my number one tip and why I took this job was I just wanted to live the lifestyle and the dream I always live. I don't I don't idolize anyone else. I don't look up to anyone in the hunting industry. I think there's a lot of cool people. I just, I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and that was live in remote Alaska, have a super cub, and do as many of, of these amazing 
once-in-a-lifetime experiences every single day, and we get to. We get to do all that stuff, and it could be just a Tuesday after work. So I would say don't. it's not all about the money. Um, make enough that you can live within your means and invest in what you want and make it work. So don't chase the money is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, probably. I took a big, big pay cut to come here, and... I could go and work for the airlines and make a lot more money. I just don't want to be gone that much. I want to fly bush planes, if you will. I want to be landing off airport. I want to get paid to do that kind of stuff, put my life on the line, and I want to be, I still land, and I, you know, I get into a spot, and my adrenaline's just pumping. Like, I've, I've shown you, like, I yeah. put my hands up and we land, and He's they're, shaking. they're just shaking <laughs> like I'm a crackhead, you know, needing to fix. It's insane. And I'm just pumped up, and I'm just like, man, this is so freaking sweet, you know? <laughs> And I just, yeah. I just love that. That's a drug that I just always have wanted to chase. And until that gets boring, I'm probably not going to do anything else. And I'm just living my dream, and I'm super grateful for to do it. I have to agree wholeheartedly because when we chased the money in the oil field, we were both miserable. I remember it was one of the worst years of our life in our marriage. It was just... I hated Williston, North Dakota. <laughs> on the crazy cycle. A lot of contention in there. <laughs> just chasing the money. It just wasn't worth it. We weren't living our dream. And even though we took a huge pay cut to come where we're at, like, we're living the dream and we don't even care. Like, we could have zero money and be happy. And that's all that matters to us. Obviously, money's important because you need food and you, have, you need that gas to fly if you're in our situation. But... Just not chasing the money, just finding joy in what you enjoy to do. And I'm a very much a big planner, so if you can write your goals down, you know, we sit down, we write a one-year plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan of who we want to be, what we want to do, and what we want to have. And if you can seriously sit down and write those goals down, either with yourself or with your spouse or your family or whoever you're sharing your life with, you can make things happen. If you set those goals in your mind, you write those things down, you're most likely going to be able to make that happen. Because that's what we did. Five years ago, we got married, we sat down, we wrote a plan. And when we pulled it out last month at our five-year anniversary, we had accomplished every single thing on that plan. When I first moved to Alaska, I did the same thing. I wrote a long list, a bucket list of everything that I wanted to do that was Alaskan, per se. And I accomplished almost everything on that list. I think... One of them was shooting a bear with my bow, so I was able to do that last year, a brown bear. I think I sure. have left, like, see a polar bear. I haven't seen one of those. But for the most part, if you write things down, you put it in your mind, you're going to be able to accomplish it because it's already subconsciously in the back of your head, like, I am going to do this. So that's kind of our advice. If you want to chase your dreams, just go for it. You know, live within your means. Don't chase the money. Um, and then write your goals down because those are the things that are going to lead you to that success. Yeah, and I, one tip that I do is I just started doing that once we got to Alaska, but there's so many different dynamics and logistics that I would kind of make a hunt planner for myself in my phone notes, and I would just go down what the hunt is, who I'm going with, where we're going to go, and what size animal I'm kind of expecting, and then I can go through and kind of prioritize those and try and check all those off, but I know where, I kind of have a tentative schedule where I'm going to go, and so that's good for Tana and the kids to kind of know what I'm up to, who I'm going to take and figure out how I'm going to get time off work. That's, that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, let's just wrap it up for today because I'm just still so excited to talk about next week, which is Tom. We're going to talk with Tom about 
wolf hunting and Tom has some crazy stories and some awesome tips on how to wolf hunt. So you don't need to hear from us any longer. We're just <laughs> super excited um, to do this podcast, kind of introduce you to a little bit about our life, some of the cool things that we get to experience, but to bring on these guys that are just the real deal hunters that aren't your just regular social media influencers, quote unquote, um, that are just kind of doing it for the gram, you know? <laughs> yeah, it just it blows me away. I mean, I'm just... I'm not anything special. I'm just a redneck that married into a good family and bought an airplane. And it's just, it's cool that, you know, we have friends and buddies that want to support us and actually listen to this podcast and people would actually take time out of their day to listen to us ramble and stuff. It's pretty cool. So thanks, thanks to everyone for their support. And we hope to, hope to grow this into a really cool platform where we can give some, some good stuff. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to leave a review and reach out to us with any questions that you have because we plan on doing a and a type session of some kind with Adam and I. Um, we did a Q&A with Travis and Tom also that's going to be coming out in a couple weeks. But if you have any questions from here on out, go ahead and ask us. We'll do a whole episode on your guys' questions and answer them. We're pretty honest. We're pretty real. We don't really sugarcoat things. We'll give, yes, it, to you. We'll give it to you straight. But yeah. I just got to say, if you're planning to do Alaska this year, you're almost too late because Alaska, I mean, the draw's already passed, but you can still plan to do it yourself, hunt. Or any hunt in general, but hunting season is going to be here really fast. In Alaska, it starts in August. So, get us the questions you want answered, or whether it's gear, logistics, pricing, who to fly with, stuff like that, and we'll try we'll try our best to answer that kind of stuff for you guys, so you can get the ball rolling. A lot of places out here they're booked two, three years in advance, even for do it yourself guys. So, it's something to plan ahead and start getting your finances and your ducks in a row. Yeah. That's a good point. So ask us any questions. You can reach out to us on social media. I'll put those links in the show notes. Um, And then stay tuned for next week because we're going to hear all about Tom and his wolf hunting escapades last year. And he's got some pretty sweet stories. So, And really good tips on how to hunt wolves. Thank you guys for joining us and tuning in today. I just wanted to mention really quick that our Stuck in the Rut store at stuckintherut.com is running a Valentine's Day flash sale right now until Friday, February 7th at midnight. So make sure that you hop on that store, check some things out. We've got some wolf hugger sweatshirts and shirts coming out, kind of in honor of all the wolf hunting that we've been doing, and some airplane shirts and stuff. So make sure you check those out. We're doing a buy one, get one 40% off with a code. So make sure to check out that website and let us know what you think about this episode. That's it for today, everyone. Thanks for joining us. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and also reach out to us with any questions. Until next time.